are you familiar with riffing on the rift have you had a chance to you know what would be great is if i said yes i have i've listened to all of them it'll be cool um... <laughs> but no, listen ev- nobody actually listens to podcasts i'm convinced everybody <laughs> likes to say they do but nobody actually does welcome to riffing on the rift an infrequent and often unscheduled companion podcast to what's in the rift Welcome back to Riffing on the Rift. I'm Josh Burgess, your host. Joining me today is the entire cast for the very first time on Riffing on the Rift and the lead designer of our system, Cortex Prime, Cam Banks. Cam, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us today. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and how you landed in the position of heading up Cortex Prime? Uh, it's, wow, it's a long story. I've been on this planet for five decades, so I'll, I don't want to start from the beginning because that would be boring. That's fair. Uh, I'm a New Zealander. I was born here, and I moved to the U.S. in about 1996, and I uh, lived there for 22 years before moving back here to New Zealand in 2018. And while I was gone, uh, the whole world changed. Um, I became a game designer and a creative director and a publisher and all those things. And uh, all of that kind of started with working on some D20 stuff in 3rd edition D&D, and that led on to working with Margaret Weiss. Uh, but we can go into all that kind of stuff at some point. But the long and the short of it is, uh, now that I'm living here in New Zealand, I, I work for Die Wolf Digital as their creative director for RPGs, specifically Cortex Prime, which is a thing I made. Um, and I had help from a whole lot of people. So that's pretty much who I am. Yeah, Cortex has gone through a lot of different iterations at this point, right? There was Cortex, Cortex Plus, and now Cortex Prime. Is that accurate? Yeah, I come up with these fancy names for what essentially is a whole bunch of different uh, games that have all more or less worked somewhat like each other and then evolved over time. Cortex Plus was a thing I named it to differentiate it from games that had come before it, which were things like Serenity, Battlestar Galactica, Supernatural, those were all what we call the classic Cortex games now. Even Serenity was not a Cortex system because Cortex gets its name from Serenity, which was the Firefly universe. Uh, it's the name that they call the internet. So that's why it's called that. That's a neat little tidbit. I was not aware of that, but being a Firefly fan myself um, makes sense now. Mm-hmm. Cortex is used a lot with existing IPs. Is there a reason behind that? Was it built for existing IPs? Or Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like it's been somewhat retroactively made as a system from some IP-based games. Serenity was, like I said, it was the first of the games that uses Cortex, although technically it's not. There was a game called Sovereign Stone, which came out sometime in 1999, around then, and it used a system that looks very much like Cortex does with different sized dice and the plot points and all this sort of stuff. Serenity kind of took that and used it for the IP from Firefly. From that point on, it was essentially a case of acquiring more licenses to make games out of. It wasn't really necessarily a thing that Cortex was designed to do, but it was consistently used as a system for those games and kind of just works. When you look at games that are licensed, such as the games from right now, from Modifius and Free League and publishers who do that, they all kind of have a house system as well. And it really isn't that uncommon for that to be the case. But I think the Cortex was one of the earlier ones to do that. 
That's interesting that it does just happen to be a happenstance. I'll say I came into Cortex unfamiliar with its history at all. What I really enjoyed about it was the flexibility that it had. So it makes sense that given that flexibility, it would work so well with existing. Speaking of existing IPs, probably the most common exposure people would have to Cortex right now would be through the Tales of Zadia system. That's licensed for the Dragon Prince, correct? Right. Uh, Netflix's Dragon Prince from Wonderstorm. Yeah, and, and if I'm not mistaken, they're the same creators who had their hand in Avatar The Last Airbender too, right? Yeah, two of the people who essentially created Avatar The Last Airbender made their own series, The Dragon Prince, which kind of has a few things somewhat Avatar-like, like it uses you know elemental-based uh, magic in some ways, but it's a whole different universe of its own and uh, it's a pretty good show so I'm, I'm glad that we're working on that one are there systems that cortex draws inspiration from or did at one point draw inspiration from when you were putting this together yeah absolutely when it was first created when serenity was first being written i was not the person who designed it then that was uh, jamie chambers and uh sean everett and those folks don perrin i think it was a kind of a derived from Sovereign Stone, but it wasn't that much like it. The bigger influences I think that came into it at that stage were probably Buffy the Vampire Slayer's Unisystem, cinematic Unisystem, and Savage Worlds, which was very, very early and, and only had just come out at the time. It didn't have a whole lot of actual supplementary stuff. So in some ways, kind of like Deadlands was maybe part of the influences there. So those sorts of things were definitely feeding into the game that Serenity was. When I took over sometime after Supernatural was released and we were working on some supplements for Serenity, the Big Damn Heroes Handbook was the first of them. When we acquired the licenses for Smallville and Leverage, I decided to break from some of that influence a lot. There was a few differences that kind of came out to try and make it not just like kind of a Savage Worlds sort of game with merits and flaws and, and that kind of thing. And... I was very much influenced by a lot of what was going on in the indie and story games kind of scene at the time. So some of Vincent Baker's games, like Dogs in the Vineyard and A Wicked Age, which was a real huge influence on me, they, they had a lot more of a narrative approach to different things, really did feed into the kind of work that we did on Smallville and Leverage. I think what a lot of folks may not realize in the, the TTRPG space is that there are really two major design philosophies behind how to set up a system. And that's either a simulation system or a narrative system. Cortex is definitely in the latter camp, you would say, right? Whereas D&D would be more of a simulation system. To some degree, I think that there's been a lot of like academic trying to sort things out into different kinds of categories for, for RPG design and how the systems work. Someone once coined the term trendy for Cortex. So it's a, that's a traditional game plus an indie game kind of smushed together. It's got little features from both. It hasn't gone fully into the small press indie, radically different kind of story game world because it has its roots in a lot of the traditional RPG stuff that you see in D&D and other games. But in that respect, it's a little bit more like fate in that same way. Like, it's, there's definitely a whole bunch of story elements, narrative elements in there, but it's still very heavily with, like, it's got dice and it's got, you know, sure. stats. Yeah, we're not pulling like cards off a tarot deck or something like that to make our decisions, uh, which I do appreciate right. about Cortex. I, we have a lot of dice in this household, and if we didn't get to use them, that, that would be, I think, a travesty, so... Oh, I love dice. I, I'm a fan of Dice's games too. I, I, I ran Amber Dice's role playing for years, but I don't actually like, you know, running games without dice anymore. I like to have things I can throw around and roll. 
Absolutely. Uh, in fact, my wife, who's a cast member, is actually a dice maker. So I think it would be a disservice to her if we didn't use dice in our system. On the narrative front for an RPG, one of the things that really appealed to me when we were trying to find a system for what's in the rift is that Cortex asks players to justify their decisions in how they build their dice pools narratively. And it's something that comes up quite a bit on our show. I'll have back and forth with our players as they're making a decision, making an assertion of what they want to do and building that dice pool that is essentially challenging them to explain how that factors into their decisions. And that's something that comes straight from Cortex's handbook. Walk me through the decision on that being such a large factor and how a dice pool is assembled. Yeah, going back a little bit to this idea of philosophy of game design, there's an attitude that you have seen or sort of story resolution mechanics and task resolution mechanics, where a task resolution thing is, I have a thing that my character wants to do, I'm going to roll some dice to see if I do it, yes or no, right? And then there's another sort of approach, which is like, this situation exists, I want to deal with it, and so I'm going to roll some dice and see if I can influence it and make the story work the way I want it to work or the way that the GM feels like it's going to work. And I think a lot of people when designing with Cortex will still kind of go back to that task resolution model. And for a lot of the games that I'm seeing made with Cortex do that just because it seems so natural for people to default back to. I think the rules, as you probably already are aware, that there's modularity in Cortex. You can build it in ways that kind of work for your particular play style and the way you like the games to work. But it is very much designed to accommodate for you to have that kind of approach. You could resolve an entire battle in one dice roll if you felt like it, because if all you're worried about is, does my character come out of this battle uh, beleaguered and, and, and worn out or fine and victorious and so on, right? Even the, the, the win and loss, fail, success conditions can be tweaked to how you want it doesn't necessarily mean that you lose you could lose with some complications as you see with hitches and so on you can succeed with those there's a lot going on in there that feeds into that idea that you're already making these decisions in play and the decisions have outcomes and that's kind of what you're rolling dice for as opposed to can i jump this chasm and i think that's what i was getting at when i was talking about the difference between simulation versus narration in these games, mm-hmm. there is a very much, as you put it, like a task-based system in some of the more popular systems that people may be familiar with out there from a standpoint of systems that people are first introduced to role-playing games with. I feel that is satisfying for a portion of the population that plays it, but a lot of folks don't even realize that they may be more invested in the actual storytelling portion of it, and the task fulfillment portion of it is overall less interesting. Yeah. Which kind of leads into really drew me to Cortex. Cortex, in my opinion, does something that a lot of other games don't in that it gives a lot more license to players than just whoever's running the game. In your Discord server for Cortex, I've seen it described as like a death of the GM system. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about what that is and, and why that's important to the philosophy for Cortex? Yeah, I felt like one of the things that would be interesting to do with Cortex and the designing the systems and the games that I've made with it before is to take power from the GM because it didn't feel that an omnipotent GM was the best potential thing to have in game. I have always thought the GM is just another kind of player with different roles. The biggest responsibility that the GM has is framing scenes and setting things up and saying who's where and who what they're doing and then just finding out what happens after that. I also hate GM screens and that's one of the <laughs> things I keep going about 
I don't like a barrier between the players and the GM. I don't think there's anything you have to hide. So the game actually requires the GM to roll dice in front of players so they can all see what they, the GM rolls. There's nothing to, to hide behind a screen, right? And I have had so many people go into huge arguments with me about this. Like, oh, I need my screen. It's got super useful reference stuff. And I'm like, what? You know, what do you need it for? Oh, you know, for looking up things. Well, you can have a reference sheet in front of you. That's fine. You don't need to hide behind something. It's a frequent thing that me and um, Rob Donahue, who was a good friend of mine who has worked on Fate from Evil Hat, we even had a panel one year at a convention, GM screens are evil, yes or no. And I was on one side and he was on the other. I'm not fully invested in this and it's just me being silly, but it does show something of my approach to how GMs are not just gods who control the game. I feel that players are the real drivers of the story. And the reason that the game even is fun is because players make choices and they tell the GM and other players what they do. So to give power to players and taking it from the GM is one of the ways that can help facilitate that. And that gives you this idea that you have not just the control over your own character that sort of stops at your character, but also extends to what role your character has in the ongoing story that we're all talking about. So there's a reason why when you're a player, you get to influence things like, I'm going to spend a point and this this thing here that I pick up and use. And everyone's like, well, there wasn't one of those before, but there is now. And it's just that that's kind of the narrative reveal that you can get in stories that doesn't necessarily change anything, but it's not normally a thing that most RPGs let you do, right? That's not the kind of power that players normally have. Yeah, it's um, it's been used quite a bit in our story so far. My uh, players have often thrown me curveballs based on spending some plot points to make something narratively true about our world that was not previously. And that, that fits in thematically to what's in the riff is too. We are ultimately a story about people coming from very different realities and converging into one. And that's, I think, very well reflected in that power of the player to control some of the larger narrative themselves. In my mind, it's a genius stroke as far as a system for an RPG goes, and it's been used to great effect so far in telling the story that we're telling on our show. Cam, I want to redirect the conversation here just a little bit to talk about the future of Cortex Prime. I know that you can't talk about any ongoing projects, but maybe can you give us the broad strokes of what the next three to five years look like for Cortex in your mind? Well, this, I mean, I'd love to have more Cortex games come out. I think that's one of the things that is in, in my original vision for Cortex Prime when I ran the Kickstarter was to create a central language for designing games that use it. That was the original vision for Cortex Prime. Make it extremely modular, make it something you can customize, build games out of, as opposed to being a game of its own. And I think their vision still holds true. I just don't know necessarily what games are going to come out of it. I think it would be cool if people were able to make their own games and, and uh, put them out there, right? The sort of third-party approach. Mm -hmm. We don't now have a solid way to express that at the moment, but it's something that's going on behind the scenes. We're talking about that even more. There's a lot of people asking, hey, can you make this open license? Can you be part of Orc? Can it be a Creative Commons thing? That's all outside of my actual control. And so therefore, it's stuff I'm contributing to and there's discussions behind the scenes. But I think it doesn't mean that anyone can't make their games and, and sort of use them. They just can't you know, make money off them at this point, right? I would agree. And I think that it is a system really for designing your own bespoke RPG. 
that's what we've done with our system. We've taken the pieces of Cortex that makes sense to our story. We've taken those modules, we've put them together in a custom character sheet, and we've asked players to describe their character via the dice that they assign to certain attributes within those modules. It really aligns itself with telling a very flexible framework of story. It's very hard to separate something like Dungeons and Dragons or Pathfinder from a fantasy universe. People still try to do it, even though that system is not designed for anything really other than a token style fantasy universe. Not that there are any wrong choices in how people tabletop game. But I think that that's an inefficient choice at best is to try and hack a system that is not designed for that into something else. I feel like one of the reasons why that, that still continues to happen is because people feel comfortable with the rules that they're playing in a game like D&D or Pathfinder, and they don't really want to learn a whole new system, which is the most frequent thing that people have told me. And I suppose just to tie back into that, what's the future look like? I would love it maybe if it was easier for people to do that. Like, it would be great if there was a way for folks to feel like, hey, we can make our own game and it's not going to be intimidating and we're not going to have to spend weeks learning some new set of rules. It's going to be so hard. Let's just use D&D and change every single thing. People who do use like D&D for other games, and I'm a huge fan of Dimension 20, they use D&D for all kinds of campaigns that aren't necessarily straight up fantasy. And yet what they're having to do is become game designers. Right. Like they really are having to change the game, how it works to make it fit what they want it to do. So if that's the case, let's make a game that lets you do that easier than D&D does I don't think I'm going to surprise anybody when I say that I sincerely doubt that anyone other than me has cracked a Cortex handbook <laughs> in this room right now, besides you and me. I have. Okay, well, <laughs> apologies. Your system is not overly complex. It's the kind of thing that I was able to explain over the course of maybe one session. Really as rules heavy or rules light as you decide to make it, or as narrowly or broadly scoped as you decide to make it to I think you'd mentioned the lack of like an orc or an OGL type of licensing system for Cortex. Yeah. It's only if you're to the point where you want to release something for sale that that becomes an issue, correct? Yeah. And it's, it's, that is fascinating to also have this conversation with people who say the game is going to die if you don't allow this to happen. And, and I mean, in some ways, maybe they're taught, they're true about the market. Like if, if you don't have people making supplementary stuff themselves to help build it and spread awareness, then maybe the game won't get to the people who need to, to sort of hear it and they won't adopt it themselves. There's a whole marketing side of this too, which is, which is important and absolutely uh, correct. But when it comes to what the game is for and what it's good for, it doesn't need to have that at this point for it to be a profit-making thing. I think it's a great way for people to be motivated to do it. Like, for sure, if you want to make a game, wouldn't it be cool if you put time into doing it to be able to sort of publish it and sell it and do that? But that isn't necessarily the reason the game exists. It doesn't exist as a thing for people to make games to sell them. as a game-building engine for your own games at home and for your own friends. And that's not to say if you have a brilliant idea or you have IP, I'm sure that that could still be negotiated with Dire Wolf as well, right? I mean, it's, it's like uh, no one really has it, – it just hasn't happened yet that someone's come sure. up to and said, hey, this is a very there – are, there are games coming out that are Cortex-based that aren't made by us. So Jay Brown had a whole Kickstarter back when it was a fandom-owned system, my previous employers. Jay had put together a sort of a superhero Kickstarter called Lifted, and that's still going to come out. But no, it's there's no like there's no simple easy way to do it right now, and that's maybe what people are frustrated by. I think 
Well, it sounds like you're at least well-informed and keyed into the community's concerns there. I'm going to take this opportunity to open up the floor to the rest of the cast here joining us. Does anyone have a question for Cam? I do, I do, I do, I do, I do. I do, I do, I do. <laughs> no. No, me first instead of first. No, me first. I'm older. Oh, my goodness. Elderly. Go ahead. All right. No, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling we're probably going to ask similar questions. So, Cam... You said you're a dice person. I would be remiss. So Ryan and I have a friend that loves dice and collects them all the time. Shout out to Ari. Mm -hmm. What is your favorite set of dice that you have? What like what do they look like? And have they treated you nicely? <laughs> I have a huge number of dice in various bags and um, things sorted out for like I, I, I may have had a campaign at one point and I put a whole bunch of dice in there for that one and I've left that pouch somewhere in my office here and it's you know if I was a smart person who looked after the dice I would take all of them and sort them out and make them all nice but oh god you're killing me I think the only thing I've really been able to do is <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I can really do is, is is assign them to like a die size and stick them in this I have this big um, what is it? The uh, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember the company of people who make they make tool bags. Yeah, and um, I was gonna say Ryan does the same shit. Ruth <laughs> <laughs> Trading Company has a bag. It's the kind of thing you put screws and stuff in, right? If you're a builder, and it's got like pockets in there, and it's that's all like divided up into like you know about eight different pockets, and all the sips are in one, and all the d8s are another one, and all the d12s are another one, and they're all over the place, and I'm sure that you would cringe a lot to see it. So I don't look after my dice and therefore they are horrible to me. They don't like me at all. And I roll the crap constantly. So I'm rolling <laughs> dice like, you know, for a friends friendly game online. And this is partly why I like digital dice in ways because then I at least can blame the computer, but it's not you know, my fault. <laughs> I'll roll hitches all over the place. Ones, 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 ones. And the players are like, this is this game's easy. We we don't have any hard time to deal with it. <laughs> See, I was considering sending oh, you no. dice as a gift, and now I'm I'm thinking twice. <laughs> uh... Well, no, I'm going to send you dice. I approve of this. You could send me dice, and that would be great because then they would they would show up given pride of place, and the other dice would be very jealous, and maybe they'd behave themselves, or they would be even more angry. <laughs> <laughs> I can't promise anything. As a result, these things are all sentient and, and don't like me. It's that's how it works. It feels like it sometimes. It really so does. <laughs> the, the session we just recorded uh, definitely felt like they were out to get us. Uh, just a quick follow up to the dice one, if that's all right. From the sound of it, you are on the dice superstition side of things, right? Uh, you believe that the dice know what's going on and will roll a certain way based on that? I believe that dice have the same kind of uh, sort of sentience as anything in the world does, which is to say we assign it when we don't like it. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> we we ignore it when it doesn't matter, and we're happy about it. So I'll put it that way. I'm not actually that superstitious about it. I don't. I don't think you have to rinse your dice off after a game to make sure that they don't <laughs> stay awful or bless them beforehand. I think that the power is entirely within each of us to confer that ability to dice if we want to or don't. So I'm not going to complain or criticize someone for being that way. Well, that's good, because I'm still going to put my dice in timeout when they misbehave. <laughs> they, they deserve it. That's, they that's true. That is Patty, do you have a physical dice uh, jail yet? No, but now that you mention it, I'm just going to jot that down real quick. 
There's a, I picked up a, it's like a, like a woodworking decorative project. mini like bird cage and I painted it all like <laughs> this flat uh, gray color and the door opens and everything and you know, you just toss them in there and they, you know, have Dice little times jail. out. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> That's actually really funny. It's so much mental effort. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Punishing something that will never care. It helps. <laughs> Okay, does this make it my turn to ask the questions? Go nuts, Yolande. Okay, so I really like how you talked about making the GM less high and mighty, like bring him down to a level playing field, remove the screen and all that. And I do a lot of work in theater and improv specifically. I teach improv to kids. One of the things that I always teach them is that if you don't work together as a team, your scene will die. It will go absolutely nowhere. So I was curious Uh because I see a lot of parallels in improv philosophy and with the way that Cortex is designed, if you have theater background or know somebody who influenced that. Uh, I have no theater background. I am completely a sponge for other people's cool ideas and things, I guess. My background is in counseling and therapy and uh, philosophy and psychology, that kind of thing. I was going to become a dispute resolution person. Uh, I was going to become a therapist. I was going to become a counselor. I went to university for this and got my degree in that. And my advisor says, hey, uh, great grades, Cam. This is awesome. You've done very well. You should never do this for a job. (laughs) And I said, that's great. To tell me this now, my last year of university, and he said I was too empathic, and I would I would take my work home with me. So what I have done instead is use all these skills about how people get along, how people connect, what's important about each, um, you know, sort of recognizing each other's sort of like mindset and and sort of principles and all that sort of stuff, and applied it to the way I think games should work. And I think there are a lot of parallels and maybe even inspirations back and forth between that and theater and the craft of acting and improv as well. So yeah, I mean, I guess it's all coming at it from a different angle, but I would say that there's just as much of that kind of thing as the origin story for that as there is your average theater geek uh, who who has come into gaming too. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, Josh and I talk about this all the time and how if you can't get into the head of a character, then you can't accurately portray that character. And I think that taking those philosophies and applying them to the gaming world, like it totally makes sense to me. And like theater therapy, like it's really the same thing. (laughs) Yeah, there's been a lot of discussion right now as the time of we're recording this of this thing called Bleed on the social medias and discourse of TTRPG. And people going on about how bleed is awful and horrible and why would you want to promote that? Now they're saying, no, it's healthy and natural and it's neutral and don't worry about it. We will talk for hours as a community about various aspects of role-playing games and how they relate to people's behavior and the way that they work and how your brain operates when you're playing characters, for example. I think we will never all agree on what that is and how it works, which is fine. But it all feeds into really cool things you can use at the table as a player or a GM and sort of understand maybe where I'm coming from when I'm playing my character or how someone else at the table is playing it too. Sometimes I'm sure that you've all had the same thing. There are people who will talk about me as in my character does this thing. And then someone else will say, my character, who isn't me, they do this thing. And we can all play the same game, but we come at it from a different sense of ownership or author stance and all that kind of other academic terms for, I think it's all really, really interesting and, and it's, it's cool to think more about it. 
I'm surprised that bleed got brought up because bleed is probably the main driver in the story that we're telling right now <laughs> with what's in the rift. Mm -hmm. I think that that intersection between the person playing a role and the role itself is a very interesting space to examine. I think there's a lot that we invest in characters that we don't even realize when we're playing them. And, and that's really kind of what what's in the rift is about. Yeah. I'm also a huge believer in consent, especially enthusiastic consent. I believe that safety tools are very important to have established at tables. If you already have a group that works just fine, you don't have to necessarily spell it all out. But I've seen you know all, all kinds of things happen at conventions where people don't talk about their own little boundary or uh, feelings of safety at the table. And all that stuff is bound up in the same kind of idea, right? I mean, if you were to drop some kind of really shocking thing that made them think outside themselves and they had no idea you were going to do it and it makes them feel awful, then that's bad, right? It isn't, it's not fun for anyone. But it's also something some people seek out and want to be surprised by or want to feel empowered by as well in play. And that's all the kind of conversation you need to have when you're starting your game. It's the kind of thing you have to talk to your players about. All very important stuff. So... I'm curious, what was your first character in, in whatever first like tabletop RPG you played? And, and how did you come up with that idea? Because I know my first character was in D&D &D, and I basically just made the character myself and called them a Dragonboard Paladin. But it was really just me, right? Because I didn't know what I was doing. So I'm, I'm curious, Cam, what was your first character? Are you saying that you're not a Dragonborn Paladin in real life? I, I am, actually. <laughs> These days, if you're not a Tiefling or Dragonborn, you're just not cool. And I don't know why you would play. That's, Correct. that's why yes. my readers of the D&D community. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> my first character was a dwarf, and his name was Gerald. Oh. And he was... A dwarf that I had made in the basic D and D Elm not Elmore covered set All right. from nineteen eighty four. I think it's the Frank Mentor version of D and D. Uh, I'm old, so obviously you know back when we first played, it was nineteen eighty something. Gerald was probably actually not my first character because I played a very very quick game of D and D with the same group when we first met the guy who came from the US with the D and D books, and he said, "Hey, let's play D and D." And I was given a character, I don't even remember what they're like, because I don't even think I knew what the stats were or anything. I tried to pretend to some goblins who came into a room to attack us that we were a film crew and don't interfere with us. We're just making a movie here, leave us alone. <laughs> I love that. That was, a, that was a character. I don't know who he was, uh, so I don't really count him as, as my example. Gerald, I made him, and I made Gerald the dwarf, and he was great. He... His first encounter was with this carrion crawler who paralyzed him on the first round. And I just, oh, no. and he just sat there and got eaten by a carrion crawler. That was my first encounter. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> so God. we said, let's do, let's do a reset. Oh, let's my make, that, that didn't happen. That's not very fun. <laughs> That's him. My dwarf who got paralyzed on his first adventure and he died. <laughs> oh, poor Gerald. I still have a hankering for playing dwarves. I played a dwarf in Baldur's Gate 3. So I think your first character will definitely have an influence on you for the rest of your life. So when someone's new to gaming, you have to be very careful what you help them make. I just wanted to share my first character and actual sit-down tabletop was with Core Dex originally. Was it really? Yeah, I, I pretty much played myself as a witch, and it was a modern setting. See, playing yourself is just easy because mm -hmm. you know yourself. Yeah, I, in real life, I'm actually a dwarf called Gerald. Um, 
Gerald, tell us about this character Cam you created. <laughs> yeah, well, his name is Ina. <laughs> that sounds cool. Doesn't have many hit points. I, I think that the... <laughs> I, I oh. have heard a lot of people who um, got into playing RPGs through Cortez came in through Marvel Heroic Roleplaying, which was a game I'm most proud of, I guess, from about 10 years ago. And we would have a lot of people running that in game shops at the time. People would come in and they'd say, hey, we're running this game. It's Marvel Superheroes. You can play it. It's great. You can take one of these characters and your favorite comic book character and play it. I still get people saying that the first time they ever played a game was with that game. And there's nothing cooler than being told that someone's first character was a character from a game you designed because you both feel really, really cool about it. Like, this is really awesome. And then you also, oh, I am so sorry. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I think you mentioned before that when you were over in the uh, United States that you were playing 3rd edition? I was a designer for uh, Dragonlance in the 3rd edition. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. I ended up being the, the line developer for, for Dragonlance for Southern Press and so I was hired as a fan um, who had done some just fan community work on converting the Dragonlance modules over to third edition. At the time, Wizards of the Coast had this thing where they would let you go online and talk about how they were designing fan versions of these things because they weren't planning on releasing them as a company at the time, right? It was just like a whole thing. When Margaret got the license to do Dragonlance for her own company, which was great, she and Tracy Hickman were going to do um, a third edition Dragonlance official thing licensed from Wizards of the Coast. And a lot of us were hired as rookie designers to sort of help contribute to this. We weren't the actual main people writing it, but we were helping. And I pitched in a lot of the rules for that first book and a lot of the stuff that I did was used for it. And over time, they brought me on as a freelancer to start with. And then I worked full time for them as the person churning out lots of Dragonlance D20 books. So it even led to me writing a novel for Dragonlance too. So I've done that. What's the name of the novel? It is called The Sellsword. And that is why I have the the username Rusty Sellsword on a lot of my web websites because uh, I'm a ginger. That's the rusty part. And Sellsword was the character from this novel. But that's such a big change though to like the cortex I've been able to play where it almost felt like unless the DM was trying, it was almost like a DM versus the player because of all the combats, uh, the heavy rule system. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But with Cortex, it feels like it's I'm telling a story and Josh is telling a story and we're just like working together to move stuff along. When you started moving away from the heavier feel of Dungeons and Dragons system and moving towards this more free flowing. Did you use any of that as motivation or was there like a obstacle to get over in your head to move away from this adversary feel? On games prior to third edition, um, like I mentioned, Amber Diceless role playing, which is a very, very GM fiat kind of game. The GM has full control over how things turn out in that game. My players can, can play role play the characters and everything else, but there's no dice. And the GM is an arbiter who just calls the shots the whole time. So that experience running that for a long time, and, and, and we all had a good time, but I felt all the burden was on me for the story to really end up being any good. Like I had to be the one who decided whatever was going to happen. With D&D 3rd Edition, a lot of the resolving things kind of went back to the system. It was a little less of the DM being the one who arbitered everything, and it was more like, well, the dice say this. And so... I think the two things combined led me to think I would love to work more often um, as a designer on things that took that allowed the system to kind of carry a lot of the burdens, but also not to be the one that made the decisions. So the players had a whole lot more of their agency. 
and that the dice would do things and you would sort of see what happens with those, but that you would have the actual ability to decide what was going to go into your pool of dice. Like how do I, how am I doing this? Which part of my character is important and why are the things that I'm doing in this game weighing into which dice go into that pool, right? At the end of the day, the GM just sort of like watches and, and, and helps guide things along and provides opposition once in a while, but isn't the one who says, okay, rocks fall over and dies, haha, end of game. Did you have a good time, right? I didn't, I wanted to, to pivot towards that new state of, of play. So that's kind of, I guess, the way, you know, from complete and total control with no dice whatsoever to dice sort of taking a lot of the burden of decision-making away from the GM only because the GM lets it happen to Cortex's sort of collaborative storytelling approach, which I think is one of the ways that people like playing it most. Although you can, as I said, tweak all of that however you like. This has been Riffing on the Rift with our guest Cam Banks. Cam, can you let our listeners know what you're working on currently? Obviously, we've got Tales of Zadia, which you may want to check out. It's a great Cortex game. I'm a huge fan of it. We have a website for it, uh, which is talesofzadia.com, on which you have a character builder, which you can make your own characters using the digital tools for that. The whole game is available as a digital compendium similar to how D&D Beyond works, because surprise, surprise, it was made by the people who did D&D Beyond. Tales of Zadia is based on the Dragon Prince, and it's a great game. It's very much a young adult fantasy kind of things. If it's not your speed, uh, then don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Cam, thank you very much for taking the time to join us and discuss Cortex Prime. People can find more information on Cortex Prime at cortexrpg.com. And we want to extend an invitation to you to rejoin us at any point in the future, should you ever feel like you need to subject yourself to this again. <laughs> what do you mean, subject yourself? <laughs> yes, please. You were, you were wonderful. He said what, he said. Yeah. Your time. what okay. kind of ice cream are you? <laughs> <laughs> this has been Riffin' on the Riff. Join us next week for a new episode of What's in the Riff as we return to our normal programming schedule. On the next Riffin' on the Rift, we join Grayson to discuss Bruce McKinney and a world without the invention of the camera. Thank you, and bye. What's in the Rift and Riffin' on the Rift? Our gas station drugs productions.